Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Of uh, Second Thessalonians, so Lord willing, we're going to look at these parting words from Pastor Paul, all right, and what he has to say. Uh, to even us today. The relevancy of God's Word is unmistakable, and uh, that's the reason we have copies of it. God has preserved it, praise the Lord. So uh, why don't you stand and let's get ready to read the text tonight as we finish up our study in 2 Thessalonians, praise the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll begin at verse 6 and go down through 18. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example or example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For We hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. Now, notice how many times we've come across the word disorderly. Have you seen that? In the Greek, it actually means idol. Not an idol that you bow down to and worship. But idol meaning, yeah, neutral. You're not doing anything. And here in the text, it's going to be referring to work, okay? It says, working not at all, but our busy bodies. Help us, Lord. Peter and Paul are the only ones in the entire Bible that use the word or term busybody. Paul used it twice, once in Timothy and here in uh, Thessalonians. And then Peter used it in his epistle, I believe, first, first Peter. So it's like uh, they were having to address some issues in the early church. Verse 12, Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Be quiet and get a job. That's what he was saying. Be quiet and get a J-O-B. But ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man. Mark him. Identify him. Whew. Somebody say, hold on, it's getting tight. Have no company with him that he may be ashamed. But notice this. Notice how harsh it may sound, but yet the compassion. Paul says, yet count him not as an enemy, 
but admonish him as a brother. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always, by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle. So I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And everybody say it. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word tonight. May it speak to our lives, speak to our hearts, our minds. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I've called this Paul's parting advice about slackers and busybodies. This is such a practical passage. I read how some years ago a wife went with her husband to his annual physical checkup. When the exam was over, the husband stepped out to the receptionist's office, or a desk rather, to pay the bill and ended up waiting for a few minutes on his wife because the doctor took that time to make a recommendation to her regarding her husband's health. He said, ma'am, your husband is suffering from a very severe stress disorder. And I'm afraid that if you don't do what I recommend, he isn't going to last very long. So here's my recommendation. He said, get up every early, every morning early, fix him a healthy breakfast. Then make him a nutritious lunch. Then prepare him a wonderful dinner every night. Be pleasant to him. Don't burden him with any of your honeydew projects. Don't even discuss your problems with him. Hire somebody else to do any house repairs. And don't nag him about anything. And the doc said, if you can do this for about a year, your husband will completely regain his health again. Well, the couple headed home and the husband turned to his wife and asked, what did the doctor have to say when I stepped out? She replied, he said, you're going to have a very difficult year. <laughs> I thought that dear wife wasn't interested in following the doctor's orders, right? Well, as we come to the close of 2 Thessalonians, we see some believers that were not interested in following Pastor Paul's advice. They had stopped working and became idle and was blaming it on the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. And so Pastor Paul would have agreed with something my mom used to tell me growing up and probably you've heard it before. She didn't coin it. That little phrase, an idle mind, is the devil's workshop. How many's heard that? Yeah, probably 90% of us. And it certainly became true in the case here of uh, the Thessalonian church because the church had some lingering problems that, like physical illnesses, if they are left untreated, they only cause more spiritual sickness, more spiritual pain. And a certain group of them had responded incorrectly to the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ, and they had just quit their jobs, 
sitting around, basically, and defended those actions, saying, but our Lord's going to come. And eventually, because this group had no source of income, as they waited on Christ's return, they just kind of run around to different homes of people in the church and kind of mooched off of them. And really, that then became an uglier situation when they began to poke their noses where they didn't belong. Right? And that's what caused Paul to refer to them as busybodies. One writer put it this way, they had time on their hands and gossip on their lips. They didn't have time to work and be productive, but they sure had plenty of time to freeload and gossip. Now, this wasn't the first time that Paul had to address these faulty views about working. Verse 10, he says, for even when we were with you, he's referring to Back when he planted the church, when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. And right after planting the church there, Paul gave them some guidelines for how to handle those who refused to work. And Paul would say, don't cater to them. No loaf to the loafer. No soup for the slacker. Read about a guy in New York City, the true story, enjoyed fine uh, dining, but he did not like to work. So 31 times he entered an expensive restaurant, ordered and ate a fine meal, and then shrugged his shoulders upon receiving the check and waited for the police to haul him off to jail. The police say he actually looked forward to getting locked up because in jail he got three square meals a day and a place to sleep. And over a period of five years, they tracked it. New York taxpayers shelled out 250000 to feed, clothe, and house that one lazy slacker. Hello. Now, there are legitimate cases where a person is unable to work. There are. And in those cases, the family of God is called upon in Scripture to help. But if we don't want to work, then Paul says, church, don't cater to them. The church shouldn't interfere with the lesson God and their hungry tummy wants to teach them. Paul is adamant. He believed that Christian charity should never breed a person's irresponsibility. If you won't work, you don't. The Jewish rabbis used to teach, quote, he who doesn't teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. The ancient Romans put it this way, by doing nothing, men learn to do evil. See, good and honest work keeps food on a person's table, keeps that person out of trouble. Then, because Paul's words, he noticed he dealt with it at the beginning. Now he's having to deal with it at the close. 
So he takes up the seriousness of it even another notch. He says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, study to be quiet, do your own business to work with your own hands as we commanded that ye may have lack of nothing. Now, just a matter of weeks after receiving the first letter, Paul is pinning 2 Thessalonians in part to, to correct those who had withdrawn from the workforce using the excuse that they were just waiting on Christ to return. And this is now the third time, everybody say, say three, this is the third time Paul tackles this subject. And each time you sense a rise in intensity. So, the first point, if you uh, was able to grab a, a study sheet for tonight, uh, I think it's point number one. We call it the worth of work. Because Paul mentions his own example in verse 8 and how he didn't just work one day a week like some have thought pastors do. Not not hardly. Paul said, I supported my own ministry in a sense. Paul being their pastor had the right, that's what he, he says in verse 9 when he uses the word power. He had the power or the right to be compensated by the church at Thessalonica. But for the betterment of the cause of Christ there, he willingly forfeited that right and was bivocational, okay? Working a secular job, how many remember what Paul did? Right, he was a tent maker by day. He was a pastor by night and weekend, okay? And as a result of that, he was a burden, he said, to nobody. So now that he sees this lingering problem, Paul decides to spend his, his final words addressing the value of a healthy work ethic, is what we would call it today. And how many know this topic of labor takes up almost as much space in uh, these two uh, epistles as does the focus on the return of Christ in, in Paul's letters? Paul endeavors to convey the fact that work is worthy in God's sight. How many's ever seen the bumper sticker that says, work fascinates me. I can sit and watch it for hours. Right? The other one uh, I know that some may agree with said, uh, the worst day of fishing is better than the best day of working. Another one goes like this. Hard work may not kill me, but why take a chance? Healthy work ethics was not just a Thessalonian issue. How many would agree that our present generation has some confusion about it too? On the one hand, we have what, what's been called workaholics. But on the other hand, we have work abhorics. They abhor work. They run the other way, right? And in the middle, though, we have the majority of people, hopefully, that fo follow the philosophy of the other bumper sticker that says, I owe, I owe. 
So off to work I go. Right? But see what has happened in the church at Thessalonica. For example, the famous Greek philosopher, Homer, he said, and this is what he said about work, he said, the gods, little g, hated humans so much that they invented work as a way to punish humans. I think some in our younger generation believe that. And really, some have heard that work is a consequence of Adam's sin and the fall. Well, the question is, is work a product of the fall? If you go back to Genesis 2.15, you'll find the answer. It says, and the Lord, the Lord God took man. Who was the first man? Okay, so the Lord God takes Adam and it says, put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. That's before the fall. So in the beginning, Adam's job was to care for, attend to what God had planted, what God had created. So work can we say it's designed by God from the beginning? And really, God himself was a worker. How many know he still is a worker? Work, in fact, is woven into the very fabric of creation. The fall didn't introduce work. It just cursed it by bringing in the thorns and the thistles and the trials that is mentioned in the third chapter of uh, Genesis. <clears throat> so when sin entered the world via the fall, work did become more difficult. So let's look at four biblical insights about work. Number one, God commands us to work. Okay? Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 and 9. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. But notice this phrase. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. So we talk about the importance of rest. But we must remember that the same commandment involves not only resting, but what? Working. So God himself models work and rest for us in Exodus 20 and verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Or hallowed it. Point number two, God is the greatest example of work in the universe. The Bible describes God's works of creation, uh, his works of judgment, his works of redemption, right? So like it or not, work is part of the creation mandate. Things that God created, they do their jobs, right? Stars shine, plants grow. 
clouds produce rain. And when we work, we're doing what we've been designed to do. Psalm 104.23, man goeth forth unto his work and to his labor until the evening. You say, well, I sure wish I could get a job where I only work about four hours a day. Well, it'd be nice. But here, you know, it's scriptural to work and basically have a long day. Yeah. Hello. Number three, work is our contribution to God's creation. Number four, work is a gift from God. Oh, no, pastor, don't say that. When we work in concert with God according to our giftedness, abilities, how many know God is glorified? We're fulfilled? Why? Because that's what we're made to do in a sense. English theologian John Stott captured the essence of, of work when he writes, Work is the expenditure of energy, manual or mental or both, in the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. And, and, and as we look at this subject in this passage, it's important to understand that the Thessalonians had been inundated with about three different influences when it came to work ethics. Number one... Some within the Jewish background, they're in Thessalonica, and most of them in Thessalonica, we believe, were Gentiles, but they did have some Jews. Some of the Jewish background believed that only those who studied the Scripture, like the scribes, were doing worthy work. Because the Jewish background separated spiritual from secular. Secondly, those in the Thessalonica church with Greek backgrounds believed that work was demeaning and belonged only to slaves. They had a superior attitude. And then finally, thirdly, then there were some that believed work was no longer necessary because Christ was to return at any moment. And so as a result, they withdrew from the workforce and what Paul calls them, they became busybodies. And this background is helpful to understanding Paul's passion to promote a biblical theology of labor to this young congregation because if this church continues with this element in it, it's not going to last very long, right? So I want us to look at Paul's six points of instruction in this passage. Number one, what's he say? He says, stay away from the slackers and the busybodies. Stay away, don't hang out with them. Paul's already exhorted and warned the believers, keep working. And now he appeals to the authority of, notice, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses Christ's full name here to communicate the absolute seriousness of the problem. This is not just Paul's opinion. This is not just a, a suggestion. He says, I command you. How many know command is a pretty strong word? He said, I command you, 
on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word command in the Greek here in verse 6 was a word that a general would use when he gave orders to his troops. Okay, It's like the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven is ordering us, stay away from the idle slacker and busybody. Sadly and sinfully, many churches, unfortunately, have certain cliques that members create. Right? Paul says this, this busybody clique in the church is one you don't want to be a member of. Hello? Because he says in verse 6, you got to pull away. Pull away from this disorderly ones. And disorderly there also means out of step. It's another military term that Paul uses, meaning they're out of rank. Okay? Those who are idle and disorderly, Paul would say they've, gained, they've gone AWOL from their God-given responsibilities. Now, the book of Proverbs, man, it has a lot to say about those who are intentionally idle how many know the book of Proverbs calls slackers sluggards? Remember that? Okay. And you may say, Pastor, it seems a bit harsh to sever ties with slackers, doesn't it? Paul will develop this further as we get down in verses 14 and 15. But for now, remember, work is worthy because it has been stamped with God's creativity, sanctified by His eternal purposes. And also keep in mind that these believers had, had ignored Paul's face-to-face -face instruction, had blown off his exhortation in his first letter, and were continuing with this delinquent behavior, I guess we could call it that. So these uncooperative, lazy Leisure lovers were defying and disobeying, disobeying uh, Paul's direct uh, exhortation in order to bring them back into the rank. Remember, they're out of step. He says, hmm, pull away from them if they're not going to change. Paul says it's time for some good old church discipline. The aim of this Pulling away. The aim of this alienation is for that wayward one to get back in step. Get back on board. Disfellowship should lead the person back to fellowship. Right? Romans 16, 17 echoes this same idea. He said, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them that cause divisions. Avoid them. So he says we're to pull back for our protection and for their restoration. Number two, follow the, follow the example of the hard workers, Paul says, in verses 7 through 9. And he uses his Silas's and Timothy as an example. He says, they labored, they toiled, which labor and toil in the Greek means to work to the point of pain. He says, they did this night and day as they were planting the church there at Thessalonica. 
They worked hard, not because they were entitled to some support, but because they wanted to give the Thessalonians an example, a model that they could imitate because they were planting a church. They did not want to be a burden on the local believers. And so the slackers, on the other hand, were coming along and mooching off the church when they should have been working to make a living for themselves. You know, I, I thought this week, I'm thankful for my parents that modeled a strong work ethic because that is something that this generation needs to see to be able to imitate. And I got to thinking, I'm grateful for the many hard workers right here in our church who model what it means to labor to what Paul said almost to the point of pain. Many of you understand that there really are no difference between the secular and sacred as you live out the truth of Colossians 3.23. Paul, once again, he tells the church at Colossae, whatsoever you do, do it heartily. It's unto the Lord, not unto men. So number three, work is the responsible thing to do, Paul says in verses 10 through 12. He refers to the proverb that he repeated all the time. If a man will not work, neither should he eat. Now, this doesn't mean that those who can't work for one reason or another shouldn't eat, okay? We've got to keep this in, in context. He's referring to those who will not work, to those who are idle even when work is available to them. So we should never use this verse to hammer the poor or the unemployed because we often don't know the whole story, okay? So we do need to be careful. This verse is referring to a small minority of believers who had willingly decided to just live off of the others and put their noses where they didn't belong. And having said that, the principle still applies. If we want food, be willing to work. It's interesting, I thought, how Christ, you, you think back to the Gospels, he fed 5,000. I believe it's in John chapter 6. Do you know what happened the next day? That crowd shows up for breakfast. Yeah. They show up again for breakfast, only that time Jesus didn't feed them. He fed them the day before in order to teach them and reveal himself to them, but Christ was not interested in subsidizing slackers or providing people with an eternal welfare state. Verse 11 describes that the idol had be, what the idol had begun to do. He said, Paul says, We hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. And a busybody is one who has so much time on their hands that they stay busy meddling in the lives of others. Someone has compared busybodies to mules. When they are pulling, they cannot kick. When they are kicking, they cannot pull. A person who is working hard is generally not going to have an opportunity to interfere with those around them. The individual who's causing the pain and the panic and, and all the drama is usually not pulling their load. Right? And Proverbs 26, 17 paints a vivid picture of what can happen when we meddle in matters that shouldn't matter to us. He says, he that passeth by and meddleth with, with strife belongeth with strife 
belonging not to him is like one that taketh a dog by the ears. Remember that scripture? So busybodies turn into gossips according to 1 Timothy 5.13. And notice what Paul told Timothy there. With all they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but tattlers and busybodies speaking things which they ought not. So I wonder if, if 1 Timothy 5.13 was written in today. I wonder if Paul would have said something like, and with all they learn to be idle. Writing Facebook post after Facebook post. Somebody say, ouch. Oh, it's quiet in here now. Speaking things they should not speak. And here, folks, it's easy to get in the habit of being idle. When that happens, being a busybody and passing along gossip can easily become a vocation itself. Paul has some strong words for those who are in the habit of being idle. Verse 12, Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. That means earn your own living. And notice again the use of the word command and then followed by the full title of Christ. See, Paul's calling the busybody to mind their own business, stop poking their nose in other people's lives, to quietly work means settle down, be still, chill out, get a job. Right? When we work, we don't have to lean on others, but can instead help others who are hurting. That's what Paul told the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4.28. Work is a wonderful antidote to anxiety. And an, I mean, number four, do the right thing even when others aren't. That's verse 13. Paul says, I know you've got these folks running around being idle and disorderly, but don't you get tired of doing what's right. In verse 13, he recognized that it's easy to get discouraged when we see others doing wrong. And some of you, maybe you've tried to help someone and maybe you've been taken advantage of. And probably these hardworking folks in the church at Thessalonica had been taken advantage of by those slackers. Whatever the case, Paul says, don't lose your focus. Don't get tired of doing what's right. Regardless of what others are doing, hang in there. Paul's encouraging those who are hard workers to not get bummed out when they see those who are not working. Galatians 6, 9 challenges, challenges us to keep on doing what is right and trust God with the results. He says, let us not be weary in what? Well doing. Because in due season, what? You're going to reap. If you faint not. So we should not let the busybody discourage us. Number five, he calls them out. So that's why he says single out the slacker. Verse 14, deals with the matter of church discipline, a subject that we should strive to take seriously. Hello, Broadway. And if any man, he says, obey not our word by this epistle, 
Note that man. Have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. These slackers had refused to obey Paul's uh, urging and orders, if you could call it that. They were clearly displaying a rebellious spirit. And as a result, direct and tough measures were going to be needed. And the Bible gives us several other passages that have to do with discipline, uh, a straying disciple. Matthew 18, I believe it's 15 through 18, Galatians 6, 1 through 3, Titus 3, uh, 10, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 3. All of those, Paul, Paul and uh, the gospel writer Matthew is dealing with this. For our purposes, for the sake of time, let's look at three steps we should take with those who fit within the parameters of our passage even today. Notice the plan. Paul says, take special note of those that are dis, uh, disobeying. This means the whole church is to take this seriously by keeping an eye on the person who persists in going down the wrong path. That's the plan, Paul says. Then, number two, the process. Don't associate with them. Watch him so you can avoid him. The verb in the Greek means don't get mixed up with them. Don't have close associations with the slacker. You're saying, is that in the Bible? Absolutely. Absolutely. Likewise, you and I must be careful not to endorse. How many times do we enable... Self-destructive behavior, right? Paul's saying, don't do it. Sometimes he says, you got to pull back so that people will fall down and have to look up. And the purpose, the plan is take special note of who's disobeying the process. Don't associate with them. The purpose, notice he says the goal of church discipline is always restoration. It's not about driving them away. It's about restoring them. The hope was that the problematic individuals would be isolated to the point that they would realize their actions were the wrong ones. This should then lead them to become willing to say, well, I guess we better mend our ways. When problem people are removed from intimate fellowship with believers, they should feel shame so that they will respond to the crisis of the conscience. Now, sadly, we've lost the element of shame today in our culture. The word shame itself has become so distasteful. Literally, in the Greek, though, it means turn on yourself to feel what you really are. That's what shame means in the Greek. Well, I certainly don't want to shame people when I preach because many are already paralyzed by false shame and false guilt. The Bible does declare that we should feel some shame about our sin. Right? Jeremiah 6.15 says, talking of Israel, were they ashamed when they had committed an abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. 
So properly understood, shame should always lead us to the Savior. Psalm 83, 16. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek thy name, O Lord. It's supposed to drive us to the Savior. Number six, be loving toward other sinners. See, verse 15 provides us with a much-needed reminder to not be too harsh with those who are messing up. Because how many know by nature our, our default setting is to get angry with those who sin differently than we do? Paul recognizes this when he writes, Count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. See, the offenders in this case, Paul says, they're not your enemy. They're fellow believers. They've just got some issues. They need to be warned. They're not your enemy. And at the same time, we're not to excuse their behavior, but we are to give them some, how many's heard the term tough love? Tough love kind of way. And, and I noticed in Paul, I see a balance because it's like if a brother persistently disobeys, he's like, don't pretend it's, it's all right. Don't be all buddy-buddy with him as if nothing's wrong. But yet, don't abandon him either because he's still your brother in Christ. Sit him down. Discuss the issue. Until you get a resolution. Warn someone is to literally put a sense of biblical wisdom in their heart or mind so that it will eventually change their behavior. That's the goal. Wow. That's quite a way to close out your epistle. Right? But that was something Paul had to address because it had went on and on and on. And this is the third time he'd had to deal with it. So he takes care of it. Doesn't he? I'd say he took care of it. So, number two, jumping back out in the outline. Notice his parting prayer for peace. So Paul concludes with some final words that are comforting. Because he's had some words that were challenging. He says, now, whew, now that I got that dealt with, now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. So 1 Thessalonians begins... And it ends with a focus on peace, if you notice that. Second Thessalonians, the same way. Same model. Begins and ends with a focus on peace. Why? I think this is on your study guide. Christ is the Lord of peace. How many know he's the only one who can bring peace? He said, he's the Lord of 
peace himself. The, the phrase, the word himself is emphatic, meaning that it's only Christ who can give us peace. You remember what John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth. Give I unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. See, this peace that surpasses all understanding can be experienced at all times. That's continuously in every way. That's in all circumstances. So this was especially comforting to these believers because they were facing persistent persecution. They were facing rumors about the return of Christ. Now they needed to discipline this click in the church. And this reminds us that life is loaded with trouble and circumstances that can easily bring us anxiety, can easily uh, unsettle us. No matter what you are going through right now, though Paul says you can have peace at all times in all ways. Some of us desperately need the kind of peace because we're caught up in all the stress and the anxiety of everything going on around us. Some may be experiencing hearts being filled with fear for various reasons. Some have friction in their homes because of ruptured relationships or dysfunction. See, the peace that Christ gives is not absence of trouble, is not the absence of trouble, but rather the confidence that he's there in the midst of the trouble. Amen. And notice how peace and Christ's presence are linked Together in verse 16, the Lord of peace himself give you peace. The Lord be with you. Boy, I want the Lord to be with me. Praise God. I read this week about a, a physician who put together a very interesting survey involving his patients. And they waited as they waited in his waiting room. They were asked to complete a questionnaire that he had designed. And one of the questions Ask was, what is your number one wish? What is your number one wish? And he said 67% of his patients wanted peace of mind. That was number one. Just some peace of mind. Friends, Paul says Christ can give that to you. Christ is the one that can give that to us. And this peace first involves coming into relationship with with God our Father, Scripture says that by our nature, we are at war with Him. But since the cross, we can commune with Him. We can have peace with God. Through the sacrificial death of our Savior, we have that peace with Him. That's why Paul could tell the church in Rome, uh, in Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with Christ. He says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to experience internal peace and to be truly at peace with others, make sure we're at peace with God. Right? And the final salutation of, of this book draws our attention to the only thing that makes this peace possible. Notice what he says, the grace. Somebody say grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Once we have been saved from our sins by grace. And we have been born again by grace. Then the Bible declares 
we will be at peace with God. Amen. Says John June, come. In other words, we cannot have this peace of God until we know the grace of God in our lives. How many know that if there is one that does not know him, they can know him. And it's as simple as childlike faith putting their trust in him. Praise God. Heavenly Father, thank you. God, you've given us a high and holy privilege. Paul reminded us that the privilege we have is actually to work. To work and make an honest living. And in that, we demonstrate the image of God. An image of God that he created in us. So help us, Lord, here to be diligent in our work. May we be a part of those who work hard enough to draw out the blessings. There is blessings in our labor. Thank you for the calling Thank you for the joy of serving you and others. And as Paul closed, thank you for the peace of God. Thank you for the grace of God. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you for peace when it is stormy all around us. If we have surrendered to you, you can continue to provide peace. It's unexplainable. It's unspeakable. That's, that's coming to us via your grace. Thank you for the cross. Somebody say thank you for the cross. Oh, thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough to save us. Help us to cast all of our care upon you tonight and experience that peace that Paul spoke about as he gave his parting words to the church at Thessalonica. In Jesus' name we pray, all God's people say amen. Amen. God bless you. Let's stand together. many in here work a secular job? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Now, several's retired. Yay. You put in your hours. That's right. We celebrate that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. How many know we can show how we live by the kind of work we do we mirror we reflect 
see America was founded in the beginning by a lot of Europeans who were believers. America's work ethic has stood out among all the nations for years. But how many know it's disappearing decade by decade? You say, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, that just causes us to realize the importance to pass it on to our children and our grandchildren. Work isn't a curse. Paul says, tarry till Christ comes. Work. Provide for your family. Let Christ, when he returns, find us busy, not busy bodies. Right? What are you, what are you playing, Sister Jones? She said, I don't know. What do you, what do you play about work? I mean, <laughs> what do you play about busybodies? That's right. I just want to please the Lord to do His will in every way. I want to be lost in His presence. As we do always, you're welcome to find a place to pray. You've got to go. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. I just want to please invite somebody to come on Sunday. Men, we meet on Saturday morning, 8 o'clock in prayer. You're welcome to join us. Definitely be with us over the weekend. We're trusting God to meet us.